Hello and welcome to the Wabi Sabi series podcast, unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, a corporate exec turned author who has recently written a series of books about topics we don't often talk about. Things like death, grief, not having kids, and the unexplained power doctors often wield over us. Apparently, some of my books have made some people feel a little uncomfortable, but I felt that I wanted to have far more conversations around weird, wonderful, and sometimes taboo topics. So I reached out to some interesting people and asked them just one question. If there is one topic that you'd love society to talk more about, what would it be and why? And what they've shared with me has been amazing. So let's dive in and see where the conversation takes us. I had this idea that at some point someone anoints you a leader. They hand you the leadership keys. All right, you're ready, go. And they don't. That is within everyone's grasp right now. And I truly believe everyone is a leader. It's just a case of whether you're choosing to actively and positively take control of your leadership influence. Strap yourselves in because you are about to hear from one seriously outstanding human. I am delighted to introduce you to the legendary Holly Ransom. Holly is a globally renowned content curator, powerful speaker and master interviewer. Not to put me under any pressure, but the caliber of people that this woman has interviewed are phenomenal. (laughs) Now, Holly's belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world that it's okay. She was named one of Australia's 100 Most Influential Women by the Australian Financial Review. She has delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Smart List of Future Game Changers to Watch, and was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. Whew taking a breath already, (laughs) having interviewed the likes, wait for it, of Barack Obama, Malcolm Gladwell, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King, Condoleezza Rice, Nobel Prize winner Muhammad Yunus, and the world's first humanoid robot Sophia. Holly fights complexity with curiosity, apathy with empowerment, and fear with fact. Holly was identified early as a dynamic thought leader and asked to co-chair the G20 Youth Summit in 2014 and the United Nations Coalition of Young Women Entrepreneurs in 2016. An accomplished company director, Holly has compressed a power-packed career into a decade, spanning corporate, non-profit and public sectors. She's the founder and CEO of consulting firm Emergent, servicing some major global clients. She's a regular on the drum and Q&A, a proud champion for diversity and inclusion as the chair of Pride Cup Australia, and was the youngest director ever to be appointed to an Australian football club, the mighty Port Adelaide. She made me say that. They're not really mighty. Go the Hawks. (laughs) Holly's podcast, Coffee Pods, was named in the top 10 business podcasts to listen to by the Sydney Morning Herald in 2018. And she's currently hosting the Energy Trailblazers podcast, which I'm actually really loving. So get onto that one. Holly's achievements feel never ending. She is a woman on a mission. She's a Fulbright scholar and has just released her first book, The Leading Edge. Another thing that you need to uh, get your hands on because it is an incredible read. You'd think that you'd feel maybe a little bit inadequate hanging out with Holly, but that's just the thing. She's such a beautiful person, incredibly humble, and her curiosity about the world and people just radiates from her sparkly eyes. 
Holly is one of the actual reasons I found my voice with creating the Wabi Sabi series. So I'm absolutely thrilled to get to sit down with you today. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. Wow, this is such a rare event to get you on the other side of the mic. You're normally interviewing, you know, like phenomenal, famous people. I feel very humbled that you're here with me today. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I think at at the moment, the thing that I wish we were having more a conversation around is, well, a couple of things. One, One is leadership, and we'll talk about that later. But at a more personal level, I think I wish we were having more of a conversation around how to be there for one another. It was really interesting. I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, someone who's in the, the ethics space, and they were talking about the pandemic and, and the, their ethical observations around you know the common good and this degree to which it really felt like in, in 2020, and even, to be honest, with some of the articles you're reading at the moment, uh, with people reflecting on 20 years on from September 11. And this sense of sort of the way crisis and, and, and tragedy in those moments unified us and how we banded together and how there was this sense of, you know, we can overcome and we can support and even just the way we treated our first responders for that matter. And then we see, you know, what's going on in our streets at the moment and some of the real just challenges and this division and this sense of, of disconnect and, and selfishness that's starting to emerge as well. And so I wish we were having a, a conversation more about what can we do for the common good and and how can we be making sure that we're we're making a, a contribution at an individual level, you know, even in the way that we, we look after friends and family and our neighbours and people like that. And I think there's been such beautiful points of light. You and I were chatting yesterday about, you know, how you've really loved connecting in with your neighbourhood. You'd normally be off, you know, around the international community every every sort of holiday period that emerges and just the way we've connected in. I just hope we can amplify more of that because I think, you know, there are, one of the things the pandemic has done, I think, is sort of made visible all the underlying cracks in the fabric of of our society and community. And the choice that we get whenever we we discover something is how we respond to it. And so as we see those cracks emerge, you know, I hope as we think about how we rebuild, we can think about how we rebuild with equity at the heart and with a sense of reciprocity and with a focus on how we do better for one another. Yeah, so beautiful. Wow. Boom. Okay. Podcast is over. (laughs) (laughs) You've just uh, hit it all. Uh, Such, such poignant things, Hole. Like, and especially you're in Melbourne and I'm in Sydney. We're both in lockdown still. And, you know, what's going on in Melbourne with all the, like, you know, it's like rioting, whether it was you said that you'd never seen the riot police ever before. Like, that's pretty confronting for us. And if you reflect back to last year and all the beautiful stories, how, you know, we were first in lockdown and how many people in the community were helping each other. I I was cooking for my whole entire street. They're all a, a lot older. And so I was, you know, helping them all with their setting up their internets. And I was the only one that was kind of shopping for everyone. And whereas this year it is, it does, it's definitely changed. And so what is that? What What's going on with are people just over it? And it's been now the whole kind of vaccination kind of argument as well. Do we think that's what's kind of polarizing people? Yeah, look, I think there's probably a lot of things. And, and, I, and again, I think this is sort of a perfect storm of things that have been the case for some time. I mean, even if we look at what Edelman have been showing us for for 20 years on the declining levels of trust, um, it's unsurprising that there are huge pockets and and some of the work they've done in more recent years on the the inequity of trust 
And so the degree to which, depending on socioeconomic status, you have trust in authority, you have trust in different aspects of society. So it's it's sort of unsurprising that, you know, people go, how can you not trust science? Well, there's a huge swathe of the community that for a long time haven't trusted science. You know, there are some um, pockets of the community. One of the things that horrified me, I was doing my master of public policy study uh, at Harvard over the last two years in a class I did last semester on behavioral science. We had a professor, we were working on projects with various public health institutions. So I was working with Madison in Dane County in Wisconsin trying to drive up vaccination rates as part of that that unit. How could we support public health messaging that would drive behavioural change? And one of the guest speakers we had come into class was a leading sort of uh, African-American thinker around kind of social policy, behavioural science, and talking about the history of the African-American community in the US and effectively being the subject of government medical experiments that were miscommunicated. And you're like, no wonder there are pockets of distrust, you know, we've got to understand that the vaccine hesitancy is a very different thing to being an anti-vaxxer. And we need to understand and be empathetic, I think, towards hesitancy because it emerges for all sorts of very valid reasons. And we've got to meet that where it is and understand how we do a better job of speaking to them to address those fears and concerns. And so part of it's not just like accessibility, I think, with, with some of the, the vaccines. It's, it's actually around the, the messaging and the environment that we're creating, where we're setting up vaccine centres, uh, where they're located, all that sort of thing. Um, so, But I think there's a lot of things that are stemming here. This is you know, an outpouring of people who felt frustrated and hard done by for some time. You know, This is uh, distrust that's been bubbling along under the surface for some time emerging. This is people who've been pent up, to your point, for 18 months. I mean, like, let's be real about how challenging the last 18 months is. And I say this as someone that still has a roof over their head, still works, and, is, you know, still has their health. Like, I cannot imagine. And I should say as well, we don't, we don't have kids. So people who've been in Victoria, they, their kids haven't had a full term of school since 2019. I mean, that's a remarkable statistic crazy, and the pressures and the challenges yeah. that comes with are real. When I was talking to, you know, a friend on the weekend and she was sort of saying she was seeking some support, which is a fantastic thing to go and do whenever you're at a hard moment. And she cannot find an appointment with a psychologist in Victoria right now. So let's just talk about some of the things that are, you know, not in our public conversation at the moment, but are very much a part of our private conversations. The struggle's real. And so I, I don't think we can diminish that and sort of the degree to which that means people have got short fuses, people are, are frustrated and are looking for an outlet to express that frustration. So, you know, I have some empathy for that as well. It's pretty um, confronting, as you say, like with, in terms of mates not being able to get support. And I think we're all trying to help each other, but everyone's kind of in their own struggle and they're all different. But, um, you know, I'm a fiercely optimistic incredibly you know Pollyanna but you know I've had so much shit happen to me in life I'm good at putting things into perspective so this whole entire thing even though I'm a person that's traveled my whole entire life I feel very caged in and I've been okay like with all the stuff I've tried to adapt but about three weeks ago I was like having a meltdown and I'm thinking what the heck you know how do I kind of get out of this I was just thinking we're never getting free (laughs) this is never changing it's felt like that for periods hasn't it I mean let's be honest absolutely and also I'm a person that copes with change really well and yet there are a lot of people that, you know, get a lot of anxiety about that. And I think the key thing is we're never going back to that old life. And I think the more that we kind of understand that and and help people to understand that and kind of progress through, the better we're all going to be, back to your point, as bad as a community and supporting each other. If you have a topic burning inside you that you'd love to talk more about and have a conversation with me, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line at hello at wabisabiseries.com. Let's head back to the chat.
you have just released this amazing book called The Leading Edge. And there's an element that you talk about there around, you know, not walking past the standard that, you know, you accept or, you know, like walking past something, then it means you accept it and learning those lessons from your gra- your beautiful grandma. I want to dive into those elements because I think it's a it's got a lovely thread of of what we're just talking about here about how we can be better leaders you know whether it's just even with our friends and supporting one another through this. So there are so many amazing gems in your book hole like but pick some key things that you think are relevant that we could actually you know everyone can use at the moment and how they can step into that leadership sort of power, I guess, you know, little or small, as you say, there's little things that we can do to actually make a difference in our communities right now. Yeah. And and thank you for the, the comments and, and for reading as well. I really appreciate it. There are two that sort of I immediately think of in the context of what we're talking about now. One is the story I open the book with, and you mentioned my grandma. Uh, she's an amazing human being. I love her to pieces. She's uh, 90 years old this year, and she's been married to my grandpa 70 years, and it's been a really interesting journey. Grandma was in the hospital sort of as I uh, was finishing writing the book, and Grandpa ended up in the hospital as the book came to market, and I didn't actually think he'd sort of get to see it. Uh, So I was just thrilled that he was able to see it and it's dedicated to both of them. So it's been a bit of a a roller coaster with the two of them with their health, unfortunately, in the last sort of 18 months, but bless them, they're still going. Um, But I tell this story of, you know, shopping with Grandma when I was like four or five years old, for those who know Perth, where I grew up, it was in uh, in uh, kind of the Scarborough area. And we were waiting in the, the checkout line and there was a man in front of us who at that point in my life was like a goliath of a human. He was enormous and he was absolutely ripping into this girl that was on the checkout. She'd evidently given him the wrong change. He was really letting her know about it. It was quite aggressive. She looked like she wanted to melt into the floor or just cry or gosh knows what. And before I knew it, you know, my grandma Dorothy, who's like five foot tall, had inserted herself between this giant of a human and this poor girl on the checkout and pointed her finger up at him and said, how dare you talk to that young lady like that? You apologize. And this guy looked like he'd never been told off in his life. Like it took him a few seconds to really take in what was going on. And he didn't look like he wanted to best with my grandmother though. So he quickly kind of, you know, grabbed his things and mumbled sorry and sort of rushed out of the store. And my grandma checked she was okay, proceeded like nothing had happened really, you know, very nonchalant bought milk and bread, headed out the door and then realized I was still standing back in the line, like kind of deer in a headlight watching all this go on. And I just said to her, you know, grandma, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. That whole encounter, that pearl of wisdom has played out in my life so many ways over since that moment. And I, I truly didn't comprehend its significance in that moment, but it's, it is my earliest memory. It's the first thing I can vividly recall. And what I think was so significant about that moment, one was my grandma didn't talk it, she did it. We talk a lot about respecting people. We talk a lot about standing up for what we believe in. But my grandmother didn't talk to me about that. She demonstrated to me what it meant to do that. And that was such a powerful lesson, you know, and, and I think, you know, we know and, and we know this about, you know, teachers will tell us this all the time. Kids will listen to pay attention to what we do, not what we say. Like that is so powerful in terms of wiring us in our understanding and our values and boundaries and all that sort of stuff. So that was really important, I think, in the role that we all have as role models in what we do and what we don't choose to walk past and how we step in to correct things that aren't right. That's massive. I think the other thing was my grandma had no title. She had no authority. She wasn't manager of the store. She wasn't in a leadership position. You know, nobody had handed her over responsibility. There were plenty other people in the near vicinity that could have done something about that situation. And it was my grandmother that did it. And I think that's a real reminder, you know, if you ask me one of the things that I believed about leadership 10 years ago that I definitely don't believe now, 
I think in my outdated view of what it meant to be a leader, I had this idea that at some point someone anoints you a leader. They hand you the leadership keys. All right, you're ready, go. And they don't. That is within everyone's grasp right now. And I truly believe everyone is a leader. It's just a case of whether you're choosing to actively and positively take control of your leadership influence because you are leading your household, you are leading your friendship group, you are leading your team. As, as to whether or not you're doing it effectively is another story, but everyone is a leader. Uh, And so that idea of taking that responsibility and actually going, okay, I've got agency. I have a role to play. I think at a time where so many of the problems we talk about are so massive, it's really easy to go above my prey grade, out of my responsibility, someone else's job, that's on Canberra, whatever. And I think we've we've got to actually take some of that responsibility back. The second thing I'll say in terms of kind of lessons in the book that you made me think of when you were asking that question was in the book, there's a chapter devoted to this idea of start before you're ready. And I think there's a lot of people that believe that they need either more time, more degrees, more skills, more money and resources, anything like that to to make the change that they want to see happen. And I share a lot of stories of people who are pioneering and doing incredible work that sort of started exactly where they are with what they had in terms of dollars and cents and time and capability and have made amazing change in the world. But, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I went out for a a walk bright and early and uh, there's this amazing house down the street from us. It's always the most social street in the house. Like everyone's masked and everyone's appropriate and everything like that. But it's it's like the epicenter. And they have the coolest kids at this house. And this house out the front has this sign that says, silly walks only, $1 fine. And I love the fact that these kids would be six and seven, have stuck this sign up in their front yard during COVID. And it causes everyone in our neighborhood to smile and have fun and be silly every time we walk past it. And for me, like, that is an example of leadership. That is those kids going, well, what can we do right now? Well, our community needs a bit of joy. Everyone's feeling a bit flat. Everyone's a bit stressed. There's a lot going on. Imagine if we could make everyone smile when they walk past our house. And so that for me is sort of the example of sort of starting where you are. It doesn't need to be huge. We need to forget the idea, you know, big moments and small movements matter as much as each other. And they actually, when we get to a big movement, if we start with a small moment. So don't diminish the power of what you can put into motion by thinking that you have to wait till you're ready because I'm just convinced readiness is a mirage anyway. Oh, I love it, Hole. Like there's so much there. It's <laughs> just beautiful. And you do, like this book is almost like a call to arms. You know, your whole kind of message is become the leader the world needs you to be. That's quite monumental. Like I sat with that and I was like, whew, because, you know, I'm going through my own kind of change and transition, you know, from like corporate to creative and becoming a potter and going, well, how do I be taken seriously on the, you know, kind of corporate stage while I'm doing, you know, sitting there covered in clay and mud, but it's actually, I'm showing how things can be done differently and how we can actually lead a life that is, is complex and it's not normal. And it is a little bit different for people, but that whole notion of be the leader, the world needs you to be in a time that there is so much uncertainty, so much disruption, there's good and bad. Like there's a lot of shit that's going on, but there's a lot of, you know, beautiful green shoots as well. And, but your point there around start small, start before you're ready, you know, get comfortable. Other chapters that you talk about, get comfortable with being uncomfortable and they're all really, really good points, I think, for us to think about now and just just take that first step. 
that's all you're telling everyone. Just take that first step and do something small that you don't realize has a reverberation on other people and actually can have a much bigger impact. Definitely. And, you know, it's interesting with what you say around, you know, be the leader the world needs you to be. Overwhelmingly, the world needs you to be you and to take that kind of authentic you and the change that you want to see in the world. Because I just fundamentally, fundamentally believe everyone's got that change, you know, whether it's change you want to see for your own circumstances, your own street, your your kids, your you know community, whatever it might be, your company, and bring that into life. And so the the first whole half of the book is devoted to the idea of leading yourself before you can lead others. You know that whole idea we've got to crawl before we can walk. So actually, it takes leaders who've done the work on themselves to understand well what is the change I care enough to make, and you know who am I authentically as a leader, and can I get comfortable to your point showing up exactly as I am? Let's em- embrace that because gosh knows we need more diverse examples out there. You know that that was one of the things that motivated me to write the book. It's just you go and do the lit review, and it's very monodimensional. I didn't look at it and go, wow, I'm, I'm in, I can see myself in these books. And I bet, geez, I bet I'm not the only one. Firstly, there are very few women. Let's just start with that diversity factor before we even start taking in, you know, culture and generation and many, many other ways we could cut the diversity equation. So, you know, that we need more diverse examples out there, not only of people, but also of contribution. Leadership can take on so many forms and we actually need it to. That's critical. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. You say a point around leadership is not for the faint-hearted, it's for the big-hearted. Talk to me about that because it's such a beautiful point. Well, I just think it, it's absolutely core. I mean, I think when we talk about faint-hearted, we often talk about it in you know a courage sense and a resilient sense. But I think one of the things that certainly emerged a lot uh, during the pandemic is just the importance of empathy and EQ and and compassion and this care that we've got to have for other people. You know, and I just think it's it's absolutely critical. I mean, everything that we hear about where the world's going. And I think this is kind of one of the more profound kind of shifts in leadership structure and thinking more generally, like we've moved out of the industrial age, which was sort of all about, you know, maximizing the efficiency with which we could get widgets out of the factory. We're very much in a world now where that that world's automated. Like if you can standardize something as we can with sort of any physical product, you can automate it, you know, and increasingly we know, you know, jobs are becoming automated in, in that world. And so when we talk about what can't the machines out human us on, overwhelmingly it is the care factor. It's the care factor. Definitely it's it's certain capacities of problem solving, particularly when uncertainty is a, a variable in it and it's creativity. And so leadership is absolutely for the big hearted, not only because it takes, you know, big hearts to care enough to want to do something. And that's one of our jobs, I think, as leaders to get more people to connect in and go, wow, this, this matters. I want to do something about this because the moment you feel, I don't think you can, uh, you can stop yourself from wanting to put something into motion. Uh, and so I think the, the what we risk actually at the moment probably is is a numbing, you know, people thinking that a, a way to cope because it's just a bit overwhelming and I understand it as a sensory response is to just shut off and disconnect. Uh, so I think we need those big hearts of people who care, care deeply, care desperately about the future of our world to really step forward and say, Let's have a go because when you're, I think it's a bit like gratitude. When you are sitting in gratitude, it's sort of impossible for that to coexist with negative thinking. You know, it's such a positive glass overflowing headspace to be in. And I think it's sort of a little bit the same with when you're sitting from a place of, you know, uh, heart and openness. It's really easy for courage to emerge because what a great why to have as a reason for being. Like it's just sort of a, it's the starting force, I think, of putting so much good leadership into motion. 
Talk to me about the name, because for me, it's almost got it like a double entendre, the leading edge. So why did you call the book that? Because I was sick of the status quo, <laughs> quite frankly. You know, we've got a lot of mediocrity going on and, and I get why. Like the status quo is safe. It's like that whole... Hang on, hang on. Be, be very clear. We've got mediocrity going on where? <laughs> well, like plenty of places you can point out, to be perfectly honest. I think you might be alluding to a, a place called Canberra, but we certainly have a bit of it going on all around the place. And I, I think that idea that we actually need people leading in a different way, because... I think about it in a high performance sense. I, I love sport. I spent a lot of my life. I have spent a lot of my life working with and in sport. And when you talk about high performance in that context, you're always talking about uh, the edge. How, how are you getting your edge? What is your edge? How are you maintaining it? Because you certainly know the thing as well as if you're standing still and you're just thinking, you know, next season you can roll out exactly what you did this year. Everyone's got your playbook. Everyone's studying what you're doing. That's not going to sustain itself. And I think there's an argument that sort of leadership has been held back, you know, by the lack of diversity in the people that we've held up as leaders and the stories we've told about them, by the fact we haven't really diversified the toolkit that we're empowering a new generation. You know, they're going out with tools that aren't match fit for the challenges of 2021. So for me, there was a little bit of of that that I really wanted to kind of, uh, I guess, have a go at and kind of try and drive a different conversation around. And then for me, I guess it was wanting to say, because sometimes we can think leading edge, geez, you know, that's that, that's got to be harder. It's got to be more difficult. And I sort of argue that I don't think it's harder. I think it's braver. I don't think it's impulsive or it's rash as some people think, you know, do, departing from the status quo and trying something new. I sort of think it's this disciplined choice to channel all of our learning you know, into a courageous new action and, and that whole idea of believing in better. So for me, it was, to your point earlier, it's sort of a rally cry to all those leaders, and I use that inclusive of everyone out there, who believe in better, who are frustrated with the status quo right now, going, this is not working for me. This is not working for my community. This is not working for our country. This is not working for my kids. This is not working for the environment. Whatever it is that's your raison d'etre, you know, that are going to go, you know what, we need to, to do, and I'm prepared to step to the edge. Let's, let's find a different way of, of doing this. One of the things that comes to mind that all completely makes sense, but the other element when I was reading it, I was thinking about, it's almost like, you know, us that are reluctant leaders as well throughout life. There are so many people, to your point about your nan, who don't even think that they're a leader in that sense. Or you talk about a story when you were in the marathon, like running, and you don't realize the people that are watching you. And so you were doing it for another reason, but actually all these people that were watching you because you were unusual, you know, as a a young woman running girl, I don't know, how how old were you again? You were in your 20s? Uh, 25, yeah. Yeah, and a young girl was watching like, there's someone like me, you know, and not realising actually you were being this reluctant leader or unexpected leader. And I think that that really spoke to me because there are so many people in my life and in my career that I've experienced that would never class themselves a leader, like to you, you know, your story about your nan again as well. But how, you know, that leading edge, it's like almost stepping over the edge and becoming the leader that they're, they're destined to be or to step into that power of which they've held back. And I honestly feel there is as much as this pandemic and the shit that's going on, there is a movement that is happening around, especially, you know, with a a number of the old school kind of patriarchies that are breaking down and a lot of us women that are really standing and stepping into power, it's happening. There's this groundswell. You feel it, right? 
So that's a beautiful almost call to arms as well for people to say, stop standing on the edge and step over and become that leader because it's bloody time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that you, you picked up on that because I completely agree. You know, one of the mantras that you'll read in the book is sort of the idea that everyone's welcome at the edge. Because what we know about right now is it certainly doesn't feel that the status quo welcomes everyone. In fact, it, it sort of actively seems to disclude and discount, you know, certain groups of people. You know, that idea that a very different form of leadership is welcome and it's far more experimental. It's absolutely values and purpose led, but it welcomes everyone and anyone to have a go, to get involved, to, to play a role and sees the value in the diversity of contribution and skills that can, people can make. So that idea that we're calling a very different group of people to play a role and to come to the edge and saying, you're welcome. Like the, this is why the, the book, you know, the biggest thing for me, and it was a discipline in the process of sort of preparing with the writing of the book is the book's got about 60 case studies. You know, there's an equal gender split. There's 42 different sectors. There's leaders in their, you know, late 20s. There's leaders in their 80s. There's everything in between. There's every sexual orientation. There's, you know, it's, it's really attempting to say leadership looks different and God knows leadership needs to look different to what it's looked like previously because we're not going to be able to be the change if we like sort of I always think about Einstein's quote like the definition of insanity is thinking you can keep doing the same thing and get a different result so we've got to acknowledge that in some instances at the moment we've got the same people who created the problem sitting around the table trying to solve it some of that is not badly intentioned some of that is just that was the sheer you know, best solution that was generated. Some of that is extraordinary defensive vested interest and, you know, lack of kind of challenge and uh, to kind of the, the, the group think, so to speak. So we need different people in the room um, making a contribution here. And, and you know, I, I really hope that a lot of people when they read this, whether it's through one story and how that speaks to them, or whether it's through the diversity of stories and how the collective speaks to them, can see themselves in the future fabric of leadership. Beautiful. You're not as old as me, but you uh, certainly have made a massive impact on your life so far. And this is, you know, like a culmination of so many things that you've done in your life. And I just want to kind of finish on those points. There's some questions I've got for you. But the first thing I wanted to ask is around, you've always been a curious soul and you talk about that a little bit, but is that why you feel, I mean, you have this phenomenal kind of leadership, this inability for people to follow you, you know, like all the different kind of platforms and things that you create. I'm on your sort of, you know, weekly inspo list or your easy, easy tiger and your love Mondays. And I'm like, they're just fabulous little anecdotes of things. It's like getting inside of your brain. What is it you feel? Was it always innately that you were curious as a kid and that that just constantly comes through your life and that's why you do the things that you do? Or where does it stem from, Hol? I think it stems from that moment with grandma and it stems from this sort of duality of what that did for me in that moment. One was it made me acutely aware that I was going to find things in my world that weren't okay. Cause I think that that's quite a disruptive moment as a kid, right? Because there's a moment, you know, in your development where you work out not everything's perfect, you know, as you sort of sort of grow up and, and your world colors a little bit and you start to understand big concepts like, you know, why do some people get treated differently to others? Or why might I be able to do and not do certain things based on, you know, my gender or something like that. And so I think that was a moment that sort of made me alive to that, but also imbued in me this sense of responsibility. And so I think there was a curiosity that came twofold at that moment. One was, well, what are these things that aren't right? 
you know, what is grandma talking about? Also in those moments where I come across them, you know, what can I do about them? And so there was always a curiosity around wanting to be the change and how do you do that? And, and so this kind of study of sort of, and this is where, you know, leadership has been a, a fascination and a study point of mine for sort of well over a, a decade professionally is sort of, you know, what can we learn? Who's doing well at this? Where are examples of people tackling these problems effectively? And, you know, I remember obviously uh, kind of got into the world of gender equality very early. And again, you're looking at, we were talking about it you know, yesterday, sort of the challenge around women not getting access to capital and how is it that we empower, and you know, and then you come across someone like Muhammad Yunus's work and discover microfinance and it just takes you down a rabbit hole of, wow, what a different approach. Like what did it take for him to generate a really different solution there? And would it work in other contexts and could a similar, not even, you know, in a financial model sense, but how could we disrupt thinking in other aspects of our society in a way that is as transformative as that new model that was innovated, you know, by him in Bangladesh with $23 out of his own pocket. So it's it's sort of remarkable what people have put into motion. So I think there's always been this innate optimism in me that humankind always finds a way. It's not to say, and, you know, at moments like this, we are extraordinarily challenged but I believe infinitely in our capability collectively to solve really big problems and to find a way through and to innovate. And I think we we see examples of this, you know, all the time. So I, I choose to hold to that optimistic North Star. But then there's a curiosity for me around, well, we don't get there. I remember a mentor sort of saying to me once, they were talking about a, a job hunting process. They're like talking about someone's approach and saying it's as though they think they can just sit in the lobby of the building and they'll get given the job. Like it's a little bit the same with some of this, you know, that whole idea of it's only going to happen if we agitate for it. Like, you know, change doesn't happen when good people sit idle. You know, it happens because we start conversations. It happens because we ask questions that prompt an inquiry and a search for a new answer. And in the process, you know, gather resources or people in a different way or make them believe that something new or um, divergent is possible. Uh, So I think that's a really important part. But I think it stems from from that moment and then the desire to make sense of that world because sort of the only way – I love what Stephen Covey says, and it's sort of a phrase that since I found it as a teenager, I've latched onto ever since. Like, you've got to seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Why does inequality exist? What's been tried before and why did it work or why didn't it work? What's fundamentally different about this moment in time? What have we learned from the people we're seeking to design a solution for and how are we co-designing with? So I just think that whole curiosity process is what gives us the context to be able to make change that works better, works for all or closer to a common good. It's um, sometimes very challenging to get change to work for all, but certainly for a for a common good. So I think that's where that curiosity comes from. You just are so articulate in, in that little paragraph, like how many <laughs> gems of gold that you just like bomb, you just keep dropping them. But the one that you said then, I was just like, whew, it's just like a light bulb moment. Change doesn't happen because good people sit idle. Like that's just a boom moment, Holly. Honestly, like just a beautiful, beautiful um, point there for me that I will take through my day today. My final question for you, because I'm desperate to know the answer to this, is you have interviewed 
so many amazing people when you talk about incredible leaders. And I don't want to know who's the best interview. I just want to know what was the most unexpected interview that you've had through your probably, what, 10, 15 years that you've been, you know, on the stage globally interviewing some phenomenal people. Unexpected in terms of actually getting the opportunity to do it. Unexpected in terms of the conversation. Yeah, probably the conversation and maybe the what came out of it or the connection with them that was unexpected for you? I always get excited to work with incredible brains. So, and I've been surprised many times over to have the opportunity. It's, it's funny in the context of this conversation, I think the one that uh, I'm drawn to answer that question with immediately was having the opportunity to interview Muhammad Yunus earlier this year. And as someone who, you know, worked in microfinance in Kenya, who, you know, has grown up like living and breathing kind of women's empowerment and had spent a lot of time working with UN women over the years. You know, you hear the phrase, you know, don't meet your idol or, you know, be careful meeting your idol. Uh, he was one that delivered and then some, like it was, it was such a privilege to be in conversation with him. That interview's sort of publicly available. It's free. You can go and listen to it, but to hear the story of what he's done and and the challenge, you know, it's easy to look at someone like him, particularly with the esteem that he has had since he's won the Nobel Peace Prize and Grameen Bank has done some incredible things and has billions of dollars of loans out now and not realize the attack and the fight that it's taken, not just to instigate the model, but to scale it and, and the people that are still detractors and his persistence and his belief um, and the contribution he's made, I just think is enormous. And one of the things I love too was just the accessibility of the way that he talks about it. You know, it was, you know, everyone's, everyone's a leader, but also when you hear the story of the origin, when it started with, you know, money out of his own wallet and grew from there, talk about someone being the change, talk about someone who saw the moment and seized it and then built on it to create a movement. Like I just find everything he's done inspiring. And um, yeah, as, as someone who's, personally had such a been a role model for mine for so long had such a massive impact on my life that that was probably the one that um was just so humbling and every bit lived up to my expectations and then some what a beautiful example and you know you're going to be my highlight so (laughs) i'm humbled thank you this has been so beautiful and you're just so gracious in sharing you know all your knowledge and um expertise in this space so i want to finish with saying to you holly your words back to you keep dreaming big and keep sparking change because you make the world like a significantly better place by you being in it and the work that you do so thank you from everyone oh, thank you so much and thanks for having me on the podcast really appreciate it it's been fun if you'd like to learn more about today's guest you'll find all the show notes and interesting links on our website wabisabiseries.com if you'd like to hear more unexpected conversations please subscribe to the series, follow us on our socials, or grab one of my books. And if you're in a generous mood, I'd love you to share the episode, or maybe even rate, review, and comment on the series. It really does make a difference. Until next time, be sure to claim your own piece of wabi-sabi and walk proud in your perfect imperfection.